Welcome to the Dare to Multiply podcast. On this podcast, we help passionate Jesus followers become courageous, obedient disciples who impact their communities for the kingdom of God. I'm your host, Cynthia Anderson, a disciple multiplication coach and trainer. I'm going to show you how to make and multiply disciples in your area. God's got great things ahead for you. Let's dare to multiply. Today on the Dare to Multiply podcast, I'm going to be speaking with J.R. Woodward of the V3 Movement, and he's going to be talking about his new book, The Scandal of Leadership, how leadership works in a multiplying movement or in a church that wants to multiply disciples and see the kingdom of God grow in their area. We'll also be talking about the development of missional communities and What does that look like? How does that work? And what kind of people do we need to be as disciple makers if we want to start a movement or if we want to see multiplication of disciples in our area? You're going to enjoy this interview, so we'll be right back in just a moment. Are you busy but not seeing the fruit you long for? Dissatisfied with your present level of impact on those around you? are frustrated with traditional methods of discipleship that don't seem to be effective? If so, the Getting Started in Disciple Making Movements course may be just what you need. Inside the Getting Started program, you'll get access to a step-by-step proven approach to making and multiplying disciples. Not only will you receive 25 short and practical video teachings spread out over six modules, but you'll have a chance to connect with others for group coaching via our monthly Zoom calls. And even more importantly, you'll become part of a global community of like-minded people from all over the world who are passionately committed to following Jesus and impacting others around them. If you want to get unstuck and begin moving forward as a disciple who makes disciples, I encourage you to go to courses.dmmsfrontiermissions.com and sign up for this powerful program today. And now to today's episode. And we are here with J.R. Woodward. J.R., so good to have you today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. It's it's so exciting to get a chance to talk to you today and to learn from you. I'm really psyched about getting a chance to hear your story and the insights you have on disciple multiplication. We're here on the Dare to Multiply podcast, and this is a a place where people come who are full of faith. They want to take the risk to dive in and try not just to add disciples, but to to be used of God to multiply disciples in their area. I'm a disciple-making movement trainer and coach. Been doing this for about 30 years. Um, As I told you before, when we, we started the recording on... Uh, in Nepal and India and currently living in Thailand and training global disciples all over the world. But I'm really super excited to hear your story. So, JR, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, How did you get involved in church planning movements? Uh, I know your story a little bit from your book, but some of our listeners may not have any idea who you are. And so tell us a little bit about that and just, yeah, what attracted you to disciple multiplication and dreaming for more than just adding a few new disciples or making church members rather than disciple makers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it really started at my beginning. I came, uh, came to Christ right before my senior year in college. And so I was a, I don't know, uh, a fairly late comer. I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. And my, 
my first experience of church was a church plant. And I was mm -hmm. a part of really a church planting movement. Uh, that particular year that they started the church, there was 50 churches started on 50 different campuses. Wow, and, that's a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's a lot for for U.S. <laughs> yeah, it is. Absolutely. For anywhere. And <laughs> so I, I would say, yeah, I, I came uh, I came to faith in my paternity, actually, my social paternity. A couple guys stuck around, and uh, I was trying to pay my way through school and couldn't afford summer school and apartment. And my older brother of paternity, which was one of the Christians in there, he just said, well, you can come and stay with us for free. And I was like, all right, that sounds good. Free works. <laughs> and uh, that's really kind of looking at their life and seeing some of the transformation is what piqued my curiosity to start reading the Bible and started reading the gospels and really fell in love with Jesus and just said like, if this is true, then I want to see how it changes my life and it changes other people's life. So I was an RA in the dorms and uh, I had uh, a hall of 50 people. And so my goal that first year, so I became a Christian this summer. So the fall started was to be able to share with everybody in my hall by the end of the year and uh, with each of the our other RAs so they could reach their own halls. And so that made for a very fascinating year. Um, I think by the time I ended it, maybe I, I could say maybe seven people I didn't have a chance to share with. So I wrote a letter to my whole hall and within that kind of shared my story in the gospel. Wow. So, and you know, yeah. So that was kind of my start, like probably a month into it, I'm kind of leading a small group and helping to build a mid-sized group with three other people. And by the end of the year, we had about 30 folks uh, join with us. And uh, fast forward, like four years later, I'm kind of planting my first church at Virginia Tech. And I was there for about 12 years. And we kind of multiplied mid-sized groups. We also had a public gathering. Uh, and so the first five years were very hellish. <laughs> Somebody asked if I believe in hell. Like, yeah, I've been there. So, <laughs> Wow. And, that, uh, I, I I have to pause and say, tell us what you mean by that. <laughs> well, I mean, I would say that like I inherited about two dozen people and it didn't seem like they had much of a missional bone in their bodies. And, mm. and you know, uh, I, I tried to love them the best I could. I got stabbed in the back. And so I really, my strategy for the most part uh, was to go and, get you know find non-christians connect with them and so over the next five years there's probably 50 people that became christians when i was with them and so mm -hmm. when we came about 100 about half the group were new christians and so that created a whole new environment and then after mm -hmm. that it was just like a fruitfulness and flourishing that was hard to even maintain we kind of went from that 100 to 1200 again multiplying uh mid-sized groups and small groups within that yeah, and then uh, 2002 went out to LA. We planted three churches out there, and then uh, long story short, like uh, I, I kind of went to seven people to discern. I asked them to discern for me what I should be doing next, and I said I could stay in LA and continue to plant, go to San Francisco and plant, or give myself over to helping church planters, or maybe there's another option. And they all kind of uh, unanimously, after about a month of prayer and, and the sermon uh, thought I should help church planners. And then it wasn't a couple of weeks later, I get a call from the 
Baptist General Association of Virginia, they were looking for someone to help with their church planning efforts. And so I, I, I didn't have a Baptist background and I wasn't necessarily too keen on the word Baptist. So I had to really think about that and pray about that. <laughs> but I think this Baptist was of a different type. I, I felt like, you know, they appreciated both men and women in ministry. And I felt like, you know, as I got to know them, uh, you know, that I should do that. So I, I, they were kind of waiting for me. They didn't offer me the job until I felt called to it, which I really liked that as well. Wow. Yeah. And so I said, you know, feel I should do this. They did. So we started, uh, that's kind of when we started V3 and, you know, I would say up to that point, like a lot of church planting here in the U S this would be 2013 was, you'd have these boot camps of five to seven days. And that's about all the training you get. If you get coaching after that, you know, you're probably mm-hmm. in grace of God. But like, um, so <laughs> I always had dreamed about having more of a, a long, longer term training. And so we, I, I, I thought about every movement, we, we kind of use the acronym CARTS. You have, um, so C is coaching, A is assessing, uh, R recruiting, training and supporting. And so those are the different elements. And I felt like what was probably most important to start with is coaching and training. So we developed more of a, like a two-year training uh, to, to, you know, semester by semester with the summer off. And we, you know, by God's grace over the last uh, 10 years, we've trained over 600 planters, um, you know, in, uh, in this kind of way of planting. Right. Wow. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And so, you know, just an honor to talk with you as you talk about this amazing fruitfulness that God has brought. And uh, just really appreciate that. I'm all about fruitfulness in the harvest. I mean, I believe the harvest is ripe and God wants us to go out there and believe him for multiplication in the harvest. And sounds like that's exactly what you've been seeing um, and looking forward to hear more about that. I have to pause and ask you one question. What does V3 stand for? I know oh, yeah, a lot yeah, of our yeah. listeners <laughs> might not know what that even is. Yeah, so I kind of inherited the name, which is about the only thing I kind of kept, but it's uh, it's kind of a voice, kind of helping people find their voice, their vision. And then uh, the last one is viral, which kind of speaks to the movement. Okay. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thank you. I, I wasn't sure either. I, I hadn't taken time to look it up, but yeah. That's right. Well, JR, you have written a lot of books as well as developed this training for planters, church planters. And um, you have our new book out recently called The Scandal of Leadership. Is that, that right? Tell us a little yes. bit why you wrote that and how that might apply to people who are uh, interested in multiplying disciples, involved in disciple-making movements or church planning movements? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an idea that really was probably twenty over 20 years old. And like I said, I, I was kind of a part of a, I would say, early young movement. Of, and, uh, and as we kind of grew and were kind of a good example, you know, I got involved in national leadership. And I just kind of noticed that the head person – started off good and became less good over the time. And I was trying to understand that. And I was asked to, uh, I often kind of spoke to the pastors and leaders and staff around the country. And uh, I was asked to speak on spiritual warfare one time. And so 
And as I was developing that talk, um, my concept of spiritual warfare kind of grew and developed and 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 I and so I kind of started to mingle those ideas of the problem of kind of controlling or dominating leadership in the church and spiritual warfare. And so I'm really kind of trying to have a deeper diagnosis to the problem of domineering leadership in the church. And uh, and I'm kind of instead of looking at it simply from a psychological or sociological, I'm kind of looking at it from the cosmological viewpoint, the the cosmic, the the Satan, the demonic, and the principalities and powers. It's quite, I always kind of wonder why does it say Jesus only did what the Father did, only said what the Father said. Well, if mimetic desire is true, Jesus himself as a human had to have a model that he looked up to, and so he looked to the Father. And his desire for the Father was there. And so when we imitate Christ, we'll also have a desire for the Father. And I think what this talks about is it relates to discipleship. Number one, any human being, the only way we can overcome the powers is to imitate Christ. There's not mm -hmm. in any other way. Number mm -hmm. two is that maybe one of the most fundamental things about discipleship is what we desire. James K. Mm -hmm. Smith talks about desire is more important than even what we believe and, and, and what we think. Those are all important, but ultimately it comes down to our loves, what we desire, right? Mm -hmm. Love God, love mm -hmm. people. And so uh, desire is the most important thing about us. So you could say that we're all captive to imitation. Mm -hmm. So the question is, who are we going to imitate? And Christ has to be, there's really two arch models, Satan and Christ. And so Christ has to be the ultimate. But we also need people that are concrete around us that, so like Paul uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ right, was, right. was a fundamental thing. And we see in the New Testament imitation is, is very important. And so yeah. for me, you know, I would say the first question I'd like to ask leaders is like, do I have a life worth imitating? Mm -hmm. Is there something so good and beautiful about my life that I would want other people to imitate it? And uh, I, I would say secondly, is that's kind of the personal question. The second is a communal question. Do we have a community we're joining? In other words, have we learned to be family together in such a way that we know how to love each other, encourage each other, how to forgive each other because we're, we're still messy people? Um, but when we do, when we're moving in a positive direction, I mean, because even as an evangelist, when I told you that the hellishness of my first church plant, mm -hmm. I was an evangelist and it got to a point I didn't want to bring people to my own church. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> wow. So, that's not good. <laughs> not good. Red and flag so, right there, huh? <laughs> eventually, eventually it became, you know, got to the place where it was healthy. But until it did, mm. it, you know, th there was nothing really that much that we had to, to offer people. Uh, we, we should be offering a community where people are living under, under Jesus' kingship and lordship. And, and, uh, and so we had to develop, a, it took time to develop a community like that. So that's the second question asked, do we have a community we're joining? The third one is a missional question. Do we have a mission we're dying for? Mm. In other words, like, uh, you know, the, the only thing I can think of dying for is the kingdom and, and God himself. Mm. And I think if you have these three pointing in the right direction, only then do I really think about the movemental question. And that is kind of because I, don't, I wouldn't want to multiply unhealth. I want mm -hmm. to multiply healthiness. Is, yeah. is what we're multiplying reproducible by just about anybody? And that's kind of the fourth question that I think about. Mm. But I, I could say I that, that the, this this book really, at the end of it, you, you really get down to either we will become a scandal to those we're leading, in other words, an obstacle, or we will follow the scandalous way of Christ. And it is scandalous. And I'm talking about like the Philippians 2 
in his mm-hmm. canonic journey where he was God, but, but did not use that to his own advantage. He became not just a human, but a slave and became obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. That whole canonic journey is really what we're called to imitate. So that's kind mm-hmm. of a, the heart of it. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for unpacking that and giving us a taste. I know there's probably much more there for us to glean from the book. And again, looking forward to that, JR. Um, I love that statement that you just said, we will become a scandal or we will follow the scandalous way of Christ. Kind of the the crux of, of the book. And one other application that kind of jumps out at me is um, you talked about you're a believer in team leadership. I am as well. Um, when you put someone up on a pedestal and they're the, you know, they're the primary person everyone sees, everyone looks to, um, it does create this, you know, thing that isn't reproducible where everybody wants to attain that, that becomes the natural thing. That's what they're imitating. That's what they want to get to, um, rather than seeing, you know, what I want to get to is to become a disciple who's worth imitating and who makes disciples who are worth imitating. And so coming down off of that pedestal, so to speak, and actually living out our lives as disciple makers in a very public way um, is so critical. And yet the more responsibility we get, the more even a movement grows, the more temptation there is to you know, spend all your time on investing in leadership, not being a disciple maker yourself anymore <laughs> um, no. because you're so full, you know, of those responsibilities. And so I'm sure there's a lot in the book that all of us could gain. But the main thing that I really wanted to talk to you about today, and I know our time has gone really fast already, but really want to learn from your experience. Um, you also wrote a book together um, with another friend, uh yeah, Dan Mike Jr. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, on on the church as movement, and I found that just to be a fascinating book, a bit different from a disciple making movement model. Um, but I I loved what you were saying. I often tell people I am not committed to any particular model. I'm committed to seeing the kingdom come and seeing. Uh, disciples multiply and um, you know really this dare to multiply podcast is really about that it's not about any particular model though most of my work has been in the cpm dmm um, stream i'd say but tell us a little bit more about um, the discipleship core group and missional communities and mid-size mid-size groups and how that all works and what you describe in that book yeah 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 and maybe uh one way, if I could kind of encapsulate our training and, and you know, in a way that's, uh, I think the book goes through, but it's just another way to do it. But I think about a grounded spirituality, uh, which is kind of a lot what this recent book deals with, uh, a missional theology and a movement ecclesiology. And so I think your questions mm-hmm. probably deal with the latter, but I want to kind of just give a quick thought to the other two. Sure. Uh, a grounded spirituality, you know, uh, is kind of basically thinking about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, our Father art in heaven is kind of this rooted identity, like we're children of God first and foremost. And where we, you know, as leaders, I kind of define leader as our identity, our praxis, or like, you know, what we do and, and how we think about that uh, and reflecting on it. And then our telos, kind of what's the end goal, not just for us, but for the people that we're leading. And I would say if our identity is not rooted in Christ, 
then we're going to probably find it in other ways. And that's good. That, and, and that's going to affect our practice or how we behave. So there's the being, the, the doing and the becoming. So the being affects the doing. And I would say, even if we're, if we're not looking at the kingdom being our ultimate goal, not, mm-hmm. not our church, not our movement, not our disciples, but the kingdom of God, like you, as you've kind of mentioned numerous times, um, if that's kind of our telos, uh, then there's a, a better chance that what we do and how we kind of live out our faith is going to be much healthier. Uh, the kingdom come is kind of, I look at it as this is vocational faithfulness. No matter what we happen mm-hmm. to do for our jobs, like it, the, it's, it's all about the kingdom of God. That's what vocational faithfulness is about. And then daily bread and debts is, I think is, a, is these are two pretty key elements of what communities out, like how do we handle finances uh, mm-hmm. or, or basic needs, and how do we think about uh, in our relationships with each other? You know, forgiving each other, and so this is a contrast community. There's different ways of being that we have to learn, and then deliver us from evil or the evil one. I think this is spiritual formation in light of the powers and understanding how the evil one works. I, we talked a little bit about that, but there's a lot more to talk about there. And then finally, kind of a what most most tradition has kind of added to the Lord's Prayer, but thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I think our greatest temptation is to build our own kingdoms by our own power for our own glory. And so yeah. this is kind of canonic leadership. It's kind of finding our sense of identity in something other than what we do or, you know, what we type of successes we have. So whether it's failure or success, that's not mm. where our sense of identity ought to come from, but it's what will pressure us to think about. So this grounded so spirituality is first. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Then there's missional theology. I think this speaks to the posture, right? Missional theology was kind of something that's been developing over the last hundred years. And it kind of sought to deal with a colonialist and triumphalist approach to mission. And so, and, and it's really at, at its heart is like understanding that mission is ultimately initiated and sustained by God. And so mm-hmm. I think there's five quick elements like in the beginning was community, you know, the social nature of God, the father and son in this unending dance of love and joy and serving each other. Uh, then there's the sending God or what we might call Missio Dei. So mm-hmm. at the center of the universe is a missionary God in his very nature. The father sends the son, the father and son send the spirit, triune God sends us. There's the kingdom of God, which is the message, which is much broader, you know, than uh, just our relationship with God. It deals with our relationship with each other, with creation, and even our own sense of health. Mm-hmm. And then there's the sent communities, and then I would say missional hermeneutic, where we understand we, we don't go to the Bible to get uh, verses that tell us about mission, but we understand that the Bible was inspired by a missionary God, written for missionaries. It doesn't make sense unless we're on mission. Right. So this yep. re, re, this all relates to our posture because if God's at work, uh, fundamentally we need to learn to see, observe, and understand what's happening in a given context and join him in that way. Uh, it's not something we have to create. It's something that we join, and it takes a whole different set of competencies. Then finally, though, like there's a movement ecclesiology. And again, all three of these intertwined is what is important. Because if we, if we don't have the missional theology, then our posture is probably going to be bad. If we don't have the grounded spirituality, then our own personal health is going to be bad. Uh, again, it kind of speaks to having a life worth imitating, community joining, things like that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, there's the two places of witness, our neighborhood and networks. And then there's three elements of the church. So if we had to kind of look, think about the church in her essence and function, I, I think there would be three words that, you know, if you have all three of these, you have the church. And that's communion. And that's kind of more the 24-7 type of thing. But also kind of, you know, you could say worship. Um, two is community. And three is the commission, which both involves discipleship and the larger mission that we have. So, uh, and then the fourth, then there's four spaces of belonging, which I think is probably most critical to kind of your initial question there. Um, Mm -hmm. So sociologists discovered in the 60s, these four spaces that all of us as humans inhabit. There's intimate space at three to four people. There's Mm -hmm. personal space at five to 12, the social space of 20 to 50, maybe even up to 70. And then there's public space, which is 70 or more. And so what you could say what sociologists discovered in the 60s, Jesus lived into in his time. He confided mm-hmm. in the three, trained the 12, mobilized the 70, and spoke riddles or parables to the crowds. Right. And so I think like uh, what we see here is like, I, th- I think like inherently, at least in the U.S., and, and I'm sure others have mimicked, imitated this in bad ways, uh, you know, probably 90% of people's time is in public space. And, mm-hmm. um, and but you look at Jesus like, that, that was an important space for him. It, certainly all four of these were places he operated in. But mm-hmm. I would say he was mostly devoted to the 12, you know, mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. discipleship space. And so for us, when we think about these four spaces, uh, when we train planters, and, and this is something I've done myself, is like you start with that kind of discipleship core, what we call that mm-hmm. five to 12 people. And together you build a social space that's oriented around mission. And so uh, for us, like in our current, in our particular context here, uh, we find that people need a place to belong before they behave and believe differently. And so mm-hmm. that space of 20 to 50 allows them a, a place to belong. And because it's at the center of that space is that discipleship community, people start w- just about unknowingly imitating them. And before long, they're starting to behave differently and now they're starting to question their beliefs and what they believe about things. So that's kind of, uh, in our context, how we live that out. So you could say what we're multiplying is that personal space within a social space. The personal space is invite only. It's a bounded set, whereas the uh, social space is a centered set, like a dotted line that anybody can be a part of. And it's most flourishing when there's at least 50% non-Christians in that space. Um, but the, so, yeah, the four space of belonging is pretty key to understand because we create structures and structures recreate us. And sometimes our mm-hmm. very structures prohibit our ability to fulfill the Great Commission, which is to mm. make disciples not have a nice service. Right. And then uh, <laughs> the five, <laughs> five, and I'm just about done here, <laughs> fivefold intelligence and polycentric leadership. So the fivefold uh, in Ephesians 4, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher is really key because mm-hmm. th- these are these are uh, not just for leaders, they're, they're for all I think all of humanity, and when we answer our call to Christ, he gives us to the church for kingdom building. So in other words, like you don't have to be a Christian in a sense, like evangelist is like a salesperson, you know, pastor is like a counselor, teacher is a teacher, apostle, they're kind of an entrepreneur starting new things. All of mm-hmm. these fivefold you see reflected in creation. Mm-hmm. But when we, and, and that's why it, it, this particular list of gifts is kind of uh, starts with the keyword calling, because they're kind of intertwined into our very being. And that's why in, in Ephesians 4, Christ gives 
apostles, prophets, to the church. The people themselves are the gifts. In Romans mm. 12, the other gift passage, you have the key word is praxis, they're very practical oriented gifts. And in, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the initial list is given by the Spirit, and, and they're kind of like the, the gift of faith and word of knowledge and, and healing and, and things of that nature, which is given by the Spirit to those who are Christians. But they're all to kind of help us ultimately live out our calling, which is found usually in our primary and secondary fivefold intelligence. And mm -hmm. that kind of orients around uh, shared leadership or what I call polycentric leadership. And, mm -hmm. I, and there's a, a last thing I'll mention is that if you, if you think about what the church is, communion, community commu commission, and then you think about the primal needs of all of humanity, which I would say is everybody kind of hungers for purpose. Uh, we all have a hunger for justice, especially when someone treats us unjustly. We all have a need to belong. We, we all desire wholeness and healing. We, we, we all kind of want to know the truth, at least as it corresponds to reality, and we all have a hunger for beauty. And so when the, and I don't think there's anything more beautiful than the church that kind of is able to meet the primal needs of all of humanity. Mm, yeah. Wow. JR, that's a lot of amazing information. A little bit of a fire hose, at least probably for most of us. Like, I think I'm going to have to yeah. listen a few times and dig back into the book to unpack some of that. Um, but yeah, give us, let's go back to a few things, if you would. And and uh, if you could give us some stories about what that looks like, um, I think that'd be really helpful to me. And I think to those who are listening, um, as we think about, say, these missional communities, you talked about the intimate space and then the personal space and then and the social space. And I know I've heard Roy Moran uh, talk about, especially in the West, um, sometimes we actually have to create social spaces where we can be missional because they don't always exist. And uh, so many people are isolated and disconnected. And if you can be an initiator of social space in your neighborhood, in your community and bring people together, it creates that place where you can begin to build an oikos in your neighborhood, so to speak. But tell us a little bit about what does that actually look like? Maybe have a story of a place where you've done that or where someone's done that, just to take it from theory into something that, that people can picture would be really helpful. Sure, sure. I'll kind of do it like uh, during COVID, I kind of stayed in Hawaii with uh, one of our church planners. She's a Korean physician, so she's like co-vocational. In other words, like uh, as opposed to bivocational, like she sees her calling as a physician as well as a church planter being, you know, uh, as long as <laughs> as long as she, you know, sees herself doing, that's kind of what she wants to do together. Uh, mother of three, and I stay with her for about a year. And uh, so I'll kind of give you an example of our social space there. Um, and, and I'll give you a little pre-COVID element, but, uh, you know, th they have a very simple social space. So first of all, it's important to know, like when she started the church, she started with 12 people. And 90% of her time was focused on those disciples. And that's not just the time that they met formally, but informally, you know, mm -hmm. so it's some of the more powerful ways that discipleship happens. But she understood, as someone who'd gone through our training, you know, that this was kind of the priority. Mm -hmm. And then with that group, they, they, they started a social space. And for, for them, that social space was pretty simple. Different people would bring food. They, they met usually in a, a third space. In other words, like it was... It was kind of the uh, 
kind of the lounge of a, a apartment complex. Uh, mm-hmm. They probably had about 50 people that would come, at least half that were non-Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they'd have a buffet of food. People would get their food, sit at their table. Someone would come and talk just for 10 minutes. It's always a different person within the discipleship group that shares mm-hmm. something. Like there could be, again, we're kind of talking about like post-Christendom, you know, space. So it's important to know our context here. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so within this context, you know, they're, they're sharing like uh it could be a verse from the scripture, or it could just be uh, a, a saying that was meaningful to them. So they share that. Someone shares a story that relates to it. And then we're at the tables talking with each other uh, kind of questions. And so it's very, very interesting because all the people at my table, the non-Christians, were fascinated and really got into the conversation. And so uh, that's kind of what social space, you know, looked like for them. And mm-hmm. and. When I was there, what I noticed is like they they were multiplying these social spaces pretty well. Like within the second year, they had three of them, but I I didn't see uh, a lot of conversions, and so we talked about that. And I even noticed that as I was there, there were some people asking me, "What does this community actually believe?" And they were pr- basically trying to pull the gospel share the gospel me. with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, this guy was kind of pretty much. This guy was kind of asking me, you know, what what is this community all about? You know, and so I felt like he was asking me, you know, just share the gospel with me. But I kind of mm-hmm. hesit I didn't I didn't want to do that because I wanted the community to kind of develop a, a longer term approach to things. And so I talked with uh the leader and uh they were kind of the their their leadership kind of discussed, but I was saying like in order to kind of keep that social space more of a connecting space as a, opposed to a challenging space uh, so that people know who, you know, could bring anybody. Uh, I, I said, you should probably d- develop a, like a four to six week, you could say like bridge, you know, from that social space to your discipleship core. And over that four to six weeks, they kind of then kind of went through the gospel and its different parts. People shared stories. They studied the scripture together. By the end of that time, uh, and, and by the way, they they just invited those that they felt were ready to mm-hmm. be a part of that, right? So they could discern that, uh, and and so they brought about twelve people, and I think all twelve of them became Christians, and they became a new discipleship group that started their own social space. So, okay. wow, that's so kind of me, a little example. Let me kind of repeat back to you to make sure I'm getting it. So they they had this dinner, and they would invite people, and it was about fifty percent. Uh, believers or disciples and about 50% who weren't yet and they would have have a meal together they'd share something that was uh, pretty neutral and discuss at tables and build relationships and then they invited some of these people who they felt were ready into a process where over four to six weeks they shared the gospel with them and invited them to become a Jesus follower and yep. and all of them did or most of them did yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they became a new personal space or a discipleship new, core that started another social space. Right. Or what in disciple making movements we'd call a disciple making group or a DBS yep. or, you know, a group like that. But there was also this missional community where they were having outreach and building relationships more broadly. Yep. So in many ways, it's kind of in, in our context, I would say like adding that as your outreach plan, you know, that you're going to build yep. a missional community as well. Were there any missional activities like as far as um, 
ministering to that community or because often when I think of a missional community, I would think of doing something that was. Um, yeah, yeah. Once, you know, doing something that was what? Something that would have community impact or would serve the needs yeah, of the yeah, community yeah, yeah. in some way. So uh, once a month, instead of having that dinner, like they would, uh, that's what they would do kind of based on the people within the group. Like one person was, uh, th their kind of work was about cleaning up the oceans. And so the whole group kind of joined them in kind of pulling plastic out of the ocean. Uh, there's other kind of examples of that, uh, whether it's kind of farming or just some concrete way to serve the, the larger neighborhood. Um, right, you know, right. one of the, uh, I mean, a big question that we have for our church plants is not like, how do we grow the church? But if God's kingdom were be more realized here, in this neighborhood, what would be different? And so those are the different things that they would do in that right. way. And of course, right. there's ongoing relationships with all these people, right? This isn't just sure. kind of uh, uh, an outreach event as much as relational capital that's being built on a daily basis. And they just happen to meet together weekly in this space. Sure. Um, and, and then, yeah, a lot of the non-Christians would join them on these service ventures and other things. So uh, another group that multiplied, you know, was specifically felt called to like the elderly. And so there's these uh, nursing homes. Uh, there's three of them in Hawaii. And, and now there's groups at each of them, uh, you know, during COVID when most mm. of the church was kind of declining, uh, I was over there and that church was continuing to grow and develop. Uh, and what they realized is that it was hard for, these uh, senior citizens to get out and go to the grocery store, you know, they're the most vulnerable of, mm -hmm. of all. And so they, uh, those groups found a way to bring groceries to every, you know, about 500 different people and every single month th throughout COVID um, and, and, and met those kind of practical needs. So. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of JR, like some of the things we've seen in movements abroad and um, in some of the movements I've been involved in of how we may go into a community with farming skills. And, you know, you're, you're gathering people around this this community of farming and well, how can we learn how to be better farmers and see, you know, greater new farming techniques brought in and then through that and then you're identifying people who are open, you're bringing biblical principles, but not maybe overt ones. And then you're discerning, oh, these are people we'd like to invite into a discovery Bible study to learn more about who Jesus is. And um, yeah, very similar kind of approach, but applied to a US context, which is really fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, time has gone really fast. This hour has been wonderful to get a chance to talk with you more and uh, hear about both of both of these books and concepts. But um, how can people get in touch with you, um, learn more from you or get a hold of these books or other resources that you and the V3 network have to offer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm on Twitter. I, I'm also on Facebook. So you probably just look at J.R. Woodward. Actually, I have my website is jrwoodward.com. And then the V3 movement is also just the V3movement.com where people okay. can kind of learn about some uh, training that we do, some of the cohorts that we do. And then books are pretty much available wherever you buy your books, whether on Amazon or elsewhere. Uh, so there's the Creating a Missional Culture, my first one, the Church as Movement, and then 
my most recent one, the scandal of leadership. That's great. Well, we will put the links for those in our uh, show notes here and make sure that people have access to those. And um, I last question as we close up here is just, as you know, most of the people who listen to me and who I've been involved in training are people who are involved in disciple making movements or church planning movements in some way. Um, what encouragement would you have for them or, um, in, you know, piece of wisdom if you knew you were speaking to that audience? Any last thing you want to say to people um, who are in that process of really trying to launch a movement of disciples in their area? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, you know, that, uh, I mean, I've come to discover and believe with even greater fervor today that like Jesus and his way of life and being is kind of the only really the answer for our world. And, and like mm -hmm. I said earlier, we have all these powers at work that are creating divisions and polarizations and violence of all types, both within and outside the church. And I, I think the only way to overcome that, the only hope is really that we more and more people learn to imitate Christ. Mm -hmm. And when we desire Christ, we'll also have a desire for the Father. And, and I think like um, yeah, I just kind of want to bring it down to that. Like our, uh, and, and I would say, you know, the people that we're closest to, like we're, we're likely to imitate their desires. And so who we choose as our models is pretty significant to who we're becoming. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so obviously Jesus is our ultimate model, but our human models are important as well, uh, because mm -hmm. they influence, uh, what we desire. So again, we're probably, we're captive to desire. The question is, uh, our choice in the matter is who we want to imitate. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as we imitate Christ, uh, you know, what what starts as kind of small and feels insignificant and can be very difficult. Like I told you, my first five years were very hellish. Uh, we have to kind of hold on and have hope because my ultimate mm -hmm. hope is in new creation, the new mm -hmm. heavens and the new earth when mm -hmm. all of the rights are, are uh, all the wrongs are made right. And I think if we live in light of that hope, uh, in other words, like uh, there's no more poverty in the new heavens and new earth. So what does that mean for me today to live into that reality now uh, mm -hmm. as far as my own generosity? There's no conflicts and violence in the new heaven and the earth. So what does that mean uh, for me now as it relates to how I relate to other people? In other words, uh, we, we know what the future that, that Jesus is bringing about. And the beauty with pe being people of hope, the way that we kind of live into that is we, we, we understand what that is and then we start to live into it now. So we become fruits, the first fruits of, of that reality. And so even if we, on this side of the new heaven and the earth, we, we don't see everything that we want to see, uh, we, 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 we can be a witness to that reality and that hope. That, and, and today people need hope, you know, people yeah. uh, need to recognize. Uh, and, and I think that's what kind of kept Paul going in the midst of all kinds of troubles, right? From mm. and probably his biggest troubles were emotional. And those are probably some of the close relationships. And he said half of Asia left him like he was deserted. Everything that happened to Jesus happened to him. And so mm. we were, we're told that, you know, like, uh, the, the service is no greater than the master. And so what Jesus went through, we in some ways will go through. And I would say this, in my times of suffering, which is, this has not only been granted us to believe, but to suffer for his namesake. In my times of suffering is mm. probably when I came 
the most closest to understanding the love of God in a deeper way. Because mm -hmm. I can kind of think about when I was in those early days and I felt betrayed by people I was loving, I, I thought about like, what did Jesus feel like when he was betrayed, when he was left all alone, you know, going mm. to the cross? It's kind of like, and that fellowship he of his suffering yeah. for me. Yeah. So mm. to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of suffering, that's mm. what life is about. And it's about trying to bring and be a sign and foretaste of the coming kingdom that is, mm. is going to come. And so we can either choose to be a part of it, be uh, a hero or a heroine in the story, or we could be a villain, but we're all part of the story. Making disciples and sharing Jesus with those around you can be difficult. We need help to keep our faith alive as we step out to do new things. Faith to Move Mountains, stirring our faith to believe for movements among the unreached, is a 30-day devotional that will encourage your heart and build your faith. In it, I and my co-author, Kevin Sutter, share a scripture, a story, and a challenge each day from years of frontline experience working in tough places. Like I said, making disciples can be hard, progress is often slow, and breakthroughs seem distant. This devotional will kickstart your faith for a movement of disciples in your area. Grab a copy on Amazon.com today. Wow, that was an insightful time. Fire hose for me a little bit, lots of information, but really powerful stuff that JR was talking with us about. Some of my takeaways were that controlling, domineering leadership is actually, it has spiritual overtones. There are spiritual strongholds related to why domineering, controlling leadership seems to emerge in churches or in movements and, and how the model of one person at the top is not a model that actually works well because of some psychological and sociological, anthropological things that cause that and how many church planners start off good or movement leaders start off good, but later on, things become less good as JR talked about. I loved his four questions and I, I took notes on these. I think you should too. These are four questions we need to regularly ask ourselves do I have a life worth imitating? Number one. Number two is, do we have a community worth joining? In your discovery group, in your disciple-making group, in the broader community of your movement that's emerging, is it something worth joining? And then do I have a mission worth dying for? What is it that is driving people to sacrifice and give up of their time and their energy and their talent because it's something that is worth giving your life for? And then is, is what we're multiplying reproducible by anyone? These four questions were a huge takeaway for me. I'm going to ask myself those regularly. I encourage you in your movement efforts to ask yourself that as well. And then he talked about we will either become a scandal or we will follow the scandalous way of Christ, which is a, a, a leader who is a servant leader, a leader who gives away authority to others. And he talks more about that. He talked about the vital importance of knowing our identity in Christ. And I love that he kind of backed up from the how-to of missional communities to talking about our own spirituality and our spiritual foundations in Christ. Um, he talked about places of witness, the intimate, personal, social, and public space. 
And I think for those who are involved in disciple making movements and church planning movements, this importance is probably my biggest takeaway, the importance of multiplying not only disciple making groups, but of, of multiplying missional communities, which are those, those spaces that we create where at least half the people in those spaces are not yet believers. And we are able to interact with people in those spaces. We create that oikos in our neighborhoods by doing uh, things that you know they are interested in or things that impact the community. We create those social spaces, those missional communities. And it's out of that that we can then invite people into Discovery Bible Study or into studying the Word of God and see them come to faith in that four to six week period or invite them to follow Jesus in that period of time. So I love that. My takeaway was that my action step for you and my challenge to you is this. What are you doing to create missional spaces? What are you doing not only to start discovery Bible studies or disciple making groups, but what are you doing to create missional spaces and even multiply missional spaces where you can engage with people in a, um, in a way that you're, you're building that relationship and out of that missional community, you can invite them into a relationship with Jesus, into a discovery process, um, especially for those who are in the West. And I think this really applies globally around the world. We need to be intentional about multiplying missional space, missional communities out of which we can invite people into that more intimate or personal space where we begin the disciple making process. Uh, God bless you guys. And we'll see you in our next Dare to Multiply podcast. That's all we've got for this episode of the Dare to Multiply podcast. One thing that would really help both us and other new potential listeners is for you to rate this show and leave a comment in iTunes, on Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you tune in to listen. Also, make sure to link up with us at dmmsfrontiermissions.com slash blog on social media. And please just share, share, share this podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. Until next time, remember, God's dreams for us are always bigger than we can imagine.